I think it's easy for us to sometimes turn on the news in the morning and to only see the bad news in the world. Maybe that's just me. I know a lot of you are morning news people. Do all of you read the news in the morning? Uh, I am a morning news person. I remember the, the huge loss that I felt when I first got an apartment on my own, realizing that there was not going to be the paper delivered every morning. Um, I was like, so what do you do with your hands when you drink your coffee if there is no paper? Um, I just had no concept. I didn't know what to do. Um, I really love the news. I still listen to NPR on my morning commute every morning. Um, and if I am completely honest, I will say I listen to news podcasts basically all day long. I download the podcast and I listen to them either when I'm at home with the girls or when I'm at school doing things or whatever. Um, I have them going on a lot. I'm a legit fan of the news. I prefer print news, but I will consume any news that you give me. And um, I know that it might be a surprise to some of you, but I'm slightly younger than some of you guys. <laughs> Only a little bit. I'm slightly younger than some people here. And uh, But sometimes reading the news can convince me that we are living in this darkest timeline. Right? Like somehow chrono- our chronological placement in the history of the world, like we are in this really bad, weird place that we're living in. And when I begin to read things that are going on in like Hong Kong with the protesters or, or the issues in Chile and, and all that's going on in these big places where democracy seems to be crumbling all around us, I feel like we're in this weird, darkest timeline. And I could sit here and continue to list reasons in the news that I feel like the news is dark and gloomy, but I have a feeling that you probably all have your own reasons for feeling like the news is dark and gloomy, so I don't need to list them all for you. You can let your imagination run with that one. But we look at the text, and Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, one of the first things he says in the second chapter, he says, brothers and sisters, what I want you to be is don't be alarmed. I want you to not be alarmed because Christ, he's already here. Christ is already here. And it's in these moments when we feel like we are living in some really dark days and in some really dark times that I find it helpful to remind me of my own history and the history of the world and the history of our existence. Like when I'm reading things and I feel like democracy is crumbling in the world around us, well, let's think about the war that happened a few years ago, 1930-ish, and maybe it's not, maybe it's not so bad, right? Like maybe this isn't so bad. In my youngness, when I look at my life and I see that, you know, I started adulthood in the middle of the Great Recession, 2008. Like that's when I came to be an adult. And I'm like, man, that was really difficult. Remember that? That was hard. And then we can look back at our history like, well, the Trail of Tears wasn't that easy either. Maybe, maybe I don't have it so bad, right? Maybe I'm alarmed at some of the things in my life. Maybe it's not so bad. When we look at life and we think the church is being persecuted and attacked now. When we look at life and we think the church is being persecuted and attacked now, maybe we should read up on that guy named Nero, right? Maybe we should think about the first century church and the issues that they were going through. And I don't say any of that to minimize the darkness that's going on around us, or the things that are going on around us, what I'm saying is is if those promises were true 2,000 years ago, or according to Eden, 200 trillion billion years ago, if those promises were true then for first century Christians that we should not be alarmed and that God is already here, maybe they're still true for us. If they were true 100 years ago with people that had problems and issues, if they're true now, then they're, they're true now. 
They're here for us. Maybe we can look at the world and not be so afraid and know that the world has been through it before, that God was already there, and that we don't have to be alarmed. We don't have to live in fear. God doesn't want us to live in fear. So the very next instruction that Paul gives to the people, he says, number one, I need you to not be alarmed, but two, I need you to not be deceived. Number one, I need you to not be alarmed. And number two, I need you to not be deceived. But I think the second instruction is harder than the first. I went to a lecture this weekend at a church in Midtown that is that the uh, Memphis Theological sponsored, the seminary that Corey went to. Um, they sponsored this lecture at this old church in Midtown, and the lecture was on racial reconciliation and racial justice. And the person that spoke was, um, the woman was in her late 30s, she was an African-American woman, and she was dynamic and engaging and probably one of the best speakers I've heard in a long time. I've been to this lecture series before and often thought about how hard the pews were. That was really all I thought the last time I went to a lecture there, is how hard the pews were. And that never even entered my mind during this lecture. It was so... I was so enthralled with what was going on. It was a great lecture. It was, a, it was really enjoyable. And um, the thesis um, of, of her talk and what she kind of went through, her thesis was that the default setting in most spaces in America is whiteness, right? That was her thesis. And I, I wasn't following her at first, and I was like, I'm going to need you to break this down. I don't, I don't get it. So she gave several examples. She goes, even though, you know, when you're in grade school and they, like early school, like kindergarten, and they list the things you do every day. She said, I remember there being a chart in my kindergarten classroom, like before you go to school, you know, we always brush our teeth, we wash our face, and we wash our hair. And she was like, and at me, as a little black girl, kept thinking, we do not wash our hair every day. No, no, we do not. And I was thinking, well, I never thought about that. I never thought about the fact that that might be not something that she engages in, right? So that was a non-starter for her. She said, so even in grade school, it felt like a lot of the world was just focused in a way that didn't make sense to me, right? And so she goes through this, and that was her point. Her point was that the world was construction, constructed by white people, for white people, and that black, her blackness in and of itself simply made her feel other a lot, right? It made her feel different. It made her feel othered. And so I came into this lecture to learn. I came, I mean, it was a Friday night at 6.30 and I got a babysitter. I came to learn, right? Like, I came to learn about racial reconciliation and justice and, to, and about how she felt and about all of those things. But I honestly, if I'm being really honest, I don't know that I entered that lecture, that three-hour experience with an understanding that I needed introspection in my own life on the topic. Is that making sense? I really didn't. But there was a point near the end of the um, first half before they did an intermission, and she had spoken for over an hour at that point, and she said, this last little bit, this last 15 minutes, I want to address the black women in the room. And I will be completely honest and tell you, I got my feathers ruffled a little bit at that time. I'm sitting three rows back, um, and I just thought, I'm a woman. I'm here. This room is majority white women. Why, why are you taking time just to address, address all of us? Address all of us. We're all here. And then when I s stepped back from my emotions for half a second, I realized I'm completely proving her point that the world is centered on whiteness, and I just couldn't understand why she couldn't talk directly to me. Um, and that 
She'd been talking to the whole room for a great length of time, and she just wanted to add a couple more points about racial justice for these people, right? She wanted to include them. But me, as a white woman, I somehow expected to maybe be catered to in that moment. I couldn't understand what it felt like to be marginalized or othered or feel slightly separated even for 15 minutes. Even for 15 minutes, I couldn't understand what it felt like just to not be the center of the conversation. Does that make sense to anybody? I couldn't understand what it felt like to not be the center. See, what I did was I deceived myself going into there thinking that there was no room for growth on the issue of racism in my own self. I deceived my own self thinking that it was beyond my capabilities and that I had no room for growth in that area, right? See, because sometimes we try to place these huge, difficult issues of the world into a box and we label them mastered, acknowledging that we, ha- we can do it. We figured that out. I got that down. I don't need any more help with that. Instead of realizing that it is a continual work, It is a constant work that we need to constantly learn and to grow and that I need to use the words of sisters like that, like sandpaper to my life, to buff out the rough edges of places that shouldn't be there. Right? When Paul admonishes us not to deceive ourselves, I think this is what he's talking about. Sometimes we look at the Christian walk and we want to mark it as completed or accomplished or finished. Or even worse, you walk into the Christian life kind of like I did into that lecture saying, I want to grow in it. But when the opportunity presented itself, you get offended by it or frustrated or it doesn't feel right. Or you kind of need to back up because it's uncomfortable. I think that's what Paul was talking about. Let us not deceive ourselves Whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or for five months, we have things to learn. We have places to grow. We still have steps to take in this life. We still have causes to champion, people to advocate for, people to love, neighbors to include. We still have work to do. Let us not deceive ourselves into saying we have it all figured out. Because when we deceive ourselves into thinking that we all have it all figured out, this next verse comes into play. And honestly, I really like it in the NLT, and I'm going to read it to you from there. Second Thessalonians verse, I mean, sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse four says, "He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God, claiming that he is God himself." Claiming that he is God himself. Now, probably the only time you have ever read that text was in relation to some end times Bible study. That's probably the only time you've ever read this, right? Or maybe you actually read it in literal left behind. That's the only time you've ever picked that up. Or or maybe you were trying to do a study about what the Antichrist was. That's probably the last time you read this verse. But Andy mentioned a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was last week, in Sunday school, that eschatology is a lot of people's favorite topic, but it's not his. Um, and sadly or thankfully, either one, it's not mine either. Uh, eschatology is far from my favorite thing. But when I read that text, that, that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, I don't see some end-time scary boogeyman that I think we're supposed to see. 
I don't see something big and cowering. I often just see myself. I often just see myself. I see a trajectory of a lot of us and a lot of people around us that when we get our eyes focused on the alarming nature of the world, when we continually deceive ourselves in our faith practice about how we don't have any room to grow and we don't have anything to do, then we can quickly become the ones. We can quickly become the ones claiming he himself to be God himself. We can quickly become the ones that claim to be God. And maybe that sounds ludicrous to you. Maybe you say, I have never claimed to be God. That is crazy. And your assertion is frustrating. Maybe that's the case. But I think if we are brutally honest, then we can know that when we deceive ourselves and then we try and create God in our own image, we try to create a God that is acceptable to us. When we deceive ourselves and we try to fix God in a way that we want him to look, that God often looks just like us. When the God of Scripture is too much to handle, when that grace that we just can't comprehend is too much to bear, well, how, what do you mean we keep forgiving them over and over? What do you mean we have to continue to be kind? What do you mean we have to do those things? When the God of Scripture becomes too much to handle, we somehow creating a, create a God that miraculously, well, he, that God now hates the people we hate. That God now only cares about the people that we care about. The God that we've created is somehow only angry when we are angry because that God is us in that moment. I know that in the past that I have used the name of God to justify my hatred and my bigotry and my shame and my pain. Because when we think we have it all figured out, when I think I have it all figured out, the God that I am worshiping is so often named Elisha. That God becomes our own self. And not only do we make a God that looks like us, but then we work hard to make our lives controllable and manageable. We want to function as the God of our own life. So that we manage every moment. We control every outcome. We mitigate that fear and worry and pain. When we become the God of our own lives, we try to make those things be pushed away. And a need to create God that looks like us and in striving to control, you know what we have removed from the equation. Well, we remove the good news. When we create a God that looks like us, the first thing to go is the good news. When we are alarmed by our surroundings, we deceive ourselves and or attempting to be like God of our own lives, we have subtracted the very good news from the gospel. We subtracted the good news from the gospel. What's the good news? 2 Thessalonians tells us as we continue, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God of our Father who loved us through grace gave us eternal comfort and a very good hope to comfort our hearts, to strengthen them in every good work indeed. Y'all, the God of all creation decided that the good work was that he would continually give us hope in the midst of our deception. 
When we wake up and turn on the dreaded news in the morning, the God of all creation, whose name is love, decided to grant us hope. When we are navigating this complicated road that is faith, and by road I probably mean dirt path that's easily you know, you get distracted on a little bit that uh, sometimes you can't always find the way and um, I often get lost on when we're navigating that road of faith. The Christ that is our Redeemer gave us the comfort of His presence and a hope for a new day and a better tomorrow. The good news is that Christ was already there. That The good news is that when we are scared and alarmed by the world around us, that Christ is already there. When we have deceived ourselves and don't understand the next way, that Christ is already there. The good news is, is when we continually try to make God in our own image, we are continually trying to make God in our own image. The Savior of all humanity is still molding us to look like His self and not our self. And our continual effort to make the world one way, He is gently pushing us in, in the right direction like a good shepherd does to the way that looks like Christ, that looks like light, that looks like hope, that looks like justice. He is moving us towards himself and making us look like himself regardless of our efforts to the contrary. May we continually be challenged to grow and to change and evolve our faith by allowing the creator to shape us and change us and do something new in us. And to do that, we have to admit that we do not have it all figured. I think sometimes in the deconstruction and reconstruction of my faith, I like to say, I thought I was right before and I was wrong, but I'm right now. Sometimes it's easier that way. But maybe we can let go of those reins a little bit. We can hold loosely to the bonds of faith so that Christ can hold tightly to us. And that's when striving ceases a little bit and we encounter the very good news of the gospel. Let us pray.